Thank you, Ho. Thank you, guys. It's been so wonderful just being with you over the weekend. And uh, special meeting, new faces. Lucky to have Luan and the guys come up as well from Kimberley. I love the unity that we're finding in the kingdom, in, in what God's doing among us. It really is special. But thank you, Unity Life, for opening your hearts and your lives to us. And uh, it was, uh, it's just wonderful in some ways coming back into the fold, as I, as I think it was said earlier. And uh, this morning, I really want to speak about picking up on a little bit on what Haya said about, you know, it's through the church that God's chosen to reveal His glory to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. The church is the primary vehicle for the kingdom of God. And uh, one of the deep convictions that we carry is that the church in our time is not that healthy. And she's not doing a great job at reflecting the glory of God to the world. I mean, you drive through Bloemfontein and I think everyone's a Christian. I mean, there's like more Christians in this town than in some nations. But, but, the state of the kingdom in Bloemfontein is just not there. Uh, and even though you might have very large buildings and large, you know, churches, many of them are not well reflecting what the kingdom of God is supposed to look like. And so I want to dig in that with you because I think Jesus said, you know, you're the light of the world which is an amazing thing. And then he said, but if the light in you is darkness, how terrible will that darkness be? If the light in the church is gone, if the lamp has gone out, if the glory is no longer here, how terrible, what hope do the nations have? Where do they run to for salvation? Because we are what God has chosen to use to bring his salvation and his kingdom to the earth. And we've got a job to do. We're not here to suck oxygen through masks. We're here to extend the kingdom of our God uh, as we become the church that he's called us to be. And many of the warnings about the, you know, in the Bible about the end times church, a lot of them aren't that comforting. <laughs> like most of the time when I read about Jesus or the disciples talking about the church in the end, there's a lot of warnings about apostasy, bad teaching. And I'm just going to read one with you quickly and then just unpack a bit of it and we'll move on from there as we look at the kind of church Jesus deserves. In our generation. Because Jesus deserves something that's beautiful. And I don't know that he's always getting it. And our hope with all of our hearts is Jesus help us to be beautiful for you on that last day. I'm lying um, in the Funda Yiver is the surname, eh? Hannes, many of you know, I'm, I'm sleeping in his bed. And, uh, <laughs> and uh, lying on the wall uh, is a, a large photo of his wedding day. Of him and Mariska just looking at each other. The sun's behind them. It's a beautiful picture. And, and every bride wants to look beautiful on a wedding day. I mean, it's like a big stress that she's, you know, I mean, anyone that's gone down that road knows how much work goes into getting her beautiful. And, and at the same time, the church is the bride of Christ. And we ought to be beautiful for him on that day. And we have to work hard. We've got a lot of work to do to get her the way she's supposed to be. And so in 2 Peter 2, verse 1 and 2, they will put that up on the board so you can follow me on I mean, at least it's online, but on screen. <laughs> so the Bible tells us, and, and this is Peter talking, and he, he looks backwards and then he looks forward. He's, he talks about Israel, and he says, but there were also false prophets among the people. And we know the Old Testament was full of false prophets. The prophets that said there was peace, that Israel was doing well, and very often God was quite upset with Israel. And, and sometimes you would have one prophet in a generation who was often hated, saying, we're not doing well. 
And all the prophets are like, kill that guy, shut him up. You know, we're the people of God. How can we not be doing, we're Israel. And when Jesus came, he's told them they weren't doing well. And they, they were shocked. How dare you say, he actually said, you, you Jews are the children of Satan. And they said, who do you think you are? We're the sons of Abraham. We're the sons of God. And he said, no, you're not. God will raise up out of the stones sons for Abraham. You're nothing like your father. And they, they hated him because of it and crucified Jesus. And so Peter's really looking at that picture and saying, as it was then, and then he looks forward to our day and he says, but just as it was then, so, uh, oh, sorry, there were any false prophets among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you, the church. False teachers, teachers that will teach us the wrong way to live, the wrong things about God. And that's future, that's now. And then he says, they will secretly, and I use that word secret, there's a mystery to the word. It's, it's not like an obvious thing. If you're not paying attention, you're not going to notice that you, you, you bit the wrong thing. It's a bit like when you go fishing, if anyone loves fishing. If you throw a hook out with no bait on it, you're not going to catch anything. And so you put bait on the hook and the fish is not paying attention. It, it, it loves the bait. It loves what's on that hook. And so it bites it thinking it's going to get life. But instead of getting life, it, it gets death. Because without, it's not paying attention. And the hook pulls it in. And so the fisherman can reel that fish in. This is the picture that we have of teachings that will come that will taste like life. They'll, they'll taste like that's a good teaching. That will nourish me. That will feed me. And so we bite the hook not realizing that there's a secret thing inside of that thing that'll actually pull us away from our Lord Jesus Christ. Do you get that? This is the warning that Peter gives us. And he says, uh, destructive heresies. Heresies are bad teachings. And they teachings that'll actually destroy us. Instead of feeding us life, they actually suck the life out of us as the people of God. And then he gives us a very key thing, which I think is very key for our generation. He says, even denying the sovereign Lord who bought them, bringing swift destruction on themselves. Let's just break that last part down. One of the biggest things he singles out and how this thing's going to work. These teachers will bring teachings that will deny the sovereignty of God. The, 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 the word sovereign means, in this, in this instance, means the kingship of God. That God will be taught not as a king to rule over his people, but rather as something else. That they don't have to serve him with all of their lives. That they can be Christians on Sunday. That they can go to church and, and, and not live their lives for the glory of God. You see, the early disciples said they left everything to follow him. But today, this town, if I had to do a survey of this town, how many people would say I'm a Christian? What would be the percentage? 80%, 90%? But how many of those people, their lives are devoted to the you see, the king in those days had absolute right over you. you. You were not your own. He actually goes on, you were bought at a price. You were a slave to sin. And the master bought you out of slavery into his house. You do not belong to you anymore. Your life is not your own. If you're living your life for you, you have denied the sovereign Lord who bought you. It's like a slave being bought off the fields of slavery and going, I'm not going to live for what my master tells me to do. I'm going to live my life my way. And that will express itself in every form of our lives, from how we worship. 
It's one of the simple things. To how we give. To how we, what do we live for? What do we devote our lives for? Most people today, I mean moms are pretty much about their kids. And dads are pretty much about their careers. (laughs) Is that what we're to live for? Jesus said, if you love father, mother, sister, brother, wife, or children more than me, you're not worthy of me. And so what we find is a Christianity that's now become the norm in our generation. Where people say, I'm a Christian, but they do not live with everything inside of them for God. They kind of fit God in as an insurance policy. It's like I pay my little tithe every now and again, and I, and I, I go to church when I feel like it. But I am not God's. So I do not belong to him. I belong to me. I decide. I decide how I worship. I decide what I'm going to do with my money. I decide. I decide. It's, me. it's my life. And if it is your life, then it's not his life. And so this teaching that he's seeing, Peter's looking forward, and he's saying this thing is going to actually destroy the house of God. It will destroy the people of God because they're going to think, I'm saved. I'm a Christian. When Jesus comes back, I'm going to be secure. But there's no security. There's swift destruction when he returns because they did not acknowledge the the lordship of Jesus Christ in their lives. Does that make sense? So I don't know about you, but when I read those scriptures, I get a little bit like, I don't know if this is a bad word, but wachatz. I'm English. If it's a bad word, you've got to forgive me. But But there's a sense of like, oh my goodness, Lord. And you realize when I live amongst the people that are compromised, I might think I'm really doing well, but that's because everyone else is doing so bad. (laughs) The standard's very low. You you, you might, and and you think, Lord. I mean, one of the scariest scriptures for me is Jesus in Luke 18.8. Jesus is looking forward, and I, and I think with his sadness. And he says, will the son of, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? I think, Lord, 80% of Bloemfontein say they're in the faith. And he looks and he says, I don't know that I'm going to find anything that's truly reflecting the faith, the true faith that was laid down by those early apostles, by how they loved God and how they lived for the glory of God. They were not their own. They were bought at a price. Does this make sense? And so I do, I I fear for our generation. And the thing is, if the church is not getting it right, no wonder why the world doesn't take us seriously. I don't blame them. Because we are hypocrites. (laughs) We are compromised. We, we're a little bit more holy than they are. We maybe swear a bit less. And, but there, there is no sense of a devotion to the king and the kingdom. And a king is literally, like a king is not a common, like we don't really know what a king is. But a king is someone that is absolute ruler. The word sovereign means absolute ruler. In other words, God, if I am a true Christian and I'm in the faith properly, is my absolute ruler and master. I'm bought. I'm his slave. I'm his servant. And when I wake up as a servant, my first priority as a servant is my master. The servant doesn't wake up for himself. He doesn't live for him. The servant lives for his master. And the master might say to the servant from time, servant, you serve me well. You can enjoy some time on your own. You can, but my priority is my master. 
And if, you, if, you, if this is not your Christianity, then you don't have true Christianity. Then you've bought into the secret destructive teachings that have led you astray from your sincere and pure devotion to Christ, according to what we've just read. Does that make sense? <laughs> they, left every, they said, Lord, we left everything to follow you. Is it any different? Is he not the same God? So as we look at this and we plant churches and try and, um, you know, there is this deep concern that we carry because we want the Lord to get glory. We want the nations to see the light of the king and the kingdom. We want them to look at the church and say, this is like heaven on earth because of, of the way we reflect him because we are his people and we are devoted to him, that he is our Lord. And so one of the, the, the real longings of our heart is that we will help through teaching, through living, model a people that I, when the Lord comes that he might say, this is my bride. This is beautiful for me. This is what I dreamed of when I looked through the cross and the pain I would go through to seek and save what was lost. This is that beautiful bride that led me to die on the cross. He's worth everything. He really is. So what kind of church does he deserve? And, uh, you know, I've heard it said, and I actually did research on that, and it does seem to be true, that when bank tellers are trained, they often can deal with fake banknotes. There's so many different kinds of fake banknotes, it's really hard to train them about, you know, which is which. So what they do is they train bank tellers. I know this is a fact in Canada. They train the bank tellers to really know what the real thing is. They, they learn it by touch. They learn it by everything. They learn what the real thing is. So that as soon as they touch the counterfeit, they go, that's not it. I could feel it. I could smell it. I could, the colors. It was just something that wasn't right. And, and so I think for us, we're so used to the counterfeit right now that I think we don't know how to, <laughs> I don't know if, you know if we know what the real is. And I want us to look at the real. What does the real church look like that Jesus is looking for? And hopefully as we study the real in the scriptures, we'll begin to discern in our lives what is real and what isn't real and repent and adjust so that we can become that pure, spotless bride without wrinkle and without blemish which the Bible calls us to grow up into. So in Acts 2, uh, 42 to, to 47, uh, we'll just read this together. And I'll, I, won't do, I don't have time in this session to do all of this. This is a, a, a big subject. But uh, there's a few things I want to just highlight as we look at this. And um, w one of the first things we see of the early church, the first Christians, those that literally gave themselves to follow Jesus, is that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship. We'll come back and work through this. But they devoted themselves to those things, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe, and many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. All the believers were together, and they had everything in common. Selling their possessions and goods, they gave to anyone within the church community as he had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple called their hearts. They broke bread in their homes, and they ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. That, that lasted for a while. They lost favor soon and were persecuted. And, and the Lord added to their number daily those who were being 
saved. Let's just look at a few thoughts there in terms of um, you know, the kind of church. Because this church was birthed here, spawned the church in Antioch, spawned Paul and, and Peter and, and Barnabas. And many of them were influenced by what was birthed here. And the early Christians ultimately began to model this kind of Christianity anywhere they went in the world. This was what Christianity looked like then. Okay. It looks very different today. Would you agree with me? I mean, we were chatting earlier, I think it was yesterday at uh, lunch, I think it was, and talking about the church and through COVID. And in a church of thousands, now they're struggling to get a few hundred to come. And you think devoted to the fellowship, devoted to the fellowship. Most churches around us in Cape Town have shrunk, many as much as down two-thirds. Giving's gone. Pastors have had to lay off staff. There's just the house of God is in disarray. And I think COVID actually just revealed what was truly there. I don't think COVID caused it. I think COVID just put a bit of pressure on what was, it just showed what was really there. Our church, the church in our time is fraught, sick, and doesn't reflect the bride she's supposed to be. And so they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. There was a sense of those people wanted to get it right so much that they eagerly listened with a heart to obey. They wanted to get this right. And the word devotion is a beautiful word, isn't it? It's like kind of a love word. If you look at a, a husband and a wife, you know, maybe they're newlyweds or whatever, and they, they're gazing over each other at a candle at dinner. And, the, you know, the, you go to their home, and he's just pouring his life out for his bride. You would say he's so devoted to her. They were devoted. In other words, this was their life priority. Have you ever noticed when someone falls in love, they, they, suddenly it's like their life priorities change. It's like he used to come surfing with us, and now you phone him, and, and now I'm, I've got, I'm busy. And then you find out he was with her, and it's like, whoa, what happened? You know, there's, a, there's, a, there's a devotion. He's now found a new love, and that new love has changed his priorities. And so they found a new love, and this new love was the truth, the way, and the life. And they were devoted to it. This was what they lived for. They didn't wake up to go to work. They had to work. They had to live. But that's not what they lived for. That's not what they devoted their lives to. They were not slaves to the system, slaves to a boss. They were slaves to God. They devoted themselves, secondly, to the fellowship. And I love that word fellowship. And in some ways, I'm going to build on this word as we pray and the Lord joins us again back into a deeper unity. But the word fellowship in Acts 2.42 is the word koinonia. And koinonia, I mean, if you've been a Christian for a while, you know the word koinonia. It's kind of like one of those buzzwords for Christianity. You know, koinonia church, whatever it is. And, but koinonia is a very powerful word. In fact, um, the, the root of the word comes from koinos, which is to have something in common. And so it really means, um, and it would include people that contribute or have shares in something or participators with a close union or association. The same interest. In some ways, marriage is a koinos. It is two separate individuals that become one. And from the time that these two were married, they shared what they had. They were living for the same thing. They would meet together, and their lives were now entwined into a new union. And, and there's a union here that's different from any other union. 
That's koinos. And so the word koinonos speaks of a church that reflects a marriage. <laughs> We're not just, we don't just go to church. We, you know, we are joined together. We are members, the Bible says in another place, of, of one body, being united and joined together. Each one of us having a part to play, like, like sinews and, and muscles, and every one of us being a part of this new thing. Today, you know, people think you just go to a church. If, that's just so far from the truth. In fact, the word koinonos is the same word used in 1 John 1, 3. Could you put that up for me quickly? 1 John 1, 3. And now we start to understand the gravitas or the, gra- the gravity of the word koinonos. Because this word is going to be used in our relationship to Jesus Christ. I, I meet people today that they're like this. I love Jesus. I just, you know, it's me and Jesus because we are the church. I don't have to go to church anymore because, you know, we're two or more gathered. He's there and my wife and I make up too, so. And that's so far from what the church is actually and was in the Bible. But here, uh, John, sorry, you got the wrong one. John, where am I? John, where am I? I 1 John 1, 3. Sorry, 1 John 1, 3. Um, the church is something, it's, it's the, the gathering, the coming together, the unity of those that were once individuals but now are joined together to become one new man in Christ Jesus. And so here we read from John, and John's using that same word that we read that the early disciples devoted themselves to the fellowship. And here he says, we proclaim to you what we've seen and heard so that you also may have fellowship that word koinonos with us so he's talking about that john as an apostle wanted a fellowship with the local church that there'd be a unity that they wouldn't just be an entity in themselves but a unity with him as an apostle and then and our fellowship your and my fellowship in john is saying our fellowship is with the father and our fellowship and as word do you remember when jesus prayed this father make them one as you and I are one. It's a unity that goes beyond I go to that church. It's a unity that I am totally, my life is entwined, entirely immersed in the people of that church. Like a marriage. That's the word. I mean, how is your life entwined with the Father and the Son as a Christian? What is your fellowship? What is your, it's not just friendship. It is absolute union. Christ in you and you in Christ. That Christ in you is called the hope of glory. So you realize Christianity is a lot deeper than what we've made it. We've just grown used to the counterfeit, cheap thing. Not, 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 not love, the expensive thing that God provided through his son. So, and this, I mean, in Acts 4 verse 32, we, we read about these early Christians a little bit later, another little snippet into their Fellowship, and, and it says all the believers, if you can put up, all the believers were in one heart and one mind. And so they cared for one another. No one had any needs. Okay. How many marriages are in one heart and one mind? <laughs> but they had one heart and one mind. And that's just not something that's said about them. We actually told as Christians that this should be how we live. And in Philippians 2 verse 2, 
I love the New American Standard. I hope this translation does it as well as the, the New American Standard. Philippians 2 verse 2. I don't mind if you use the NIV. Paul writes, then make my joy complete, talking to the church, by being like-minded or having the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit and intent on one purpose. This is the church. It's, it's one mind. What does that mean? One of the big challenges today is the internet. Because in the old days, a bad teacher would come to town, the elders would get up and say, hey, you know that guy that's come to town is trying to get into the, just don't listen to him, he's talking rubbish. And the people listened to their leaders because they understood that the elders were given a, a, a responsibility to care for them. And if there was a concern and they weren't sure about that guy, they would get a hold of Paul or John or one of the apostles and say, hey, this guy's teaching this, is this cool? And they would get a letter back saying, no, it's not. You know, don't listen to that guy. They're talking rubbish. And they would just shut that guy up because, you know, the church understood as a community, it had to defend itself because like COVID is all around us, trying to break into the human body and begin to destroy us inside. So bad teaching works. But today, in the end times, we live in a generation where people will gather teachers to tell them what their itchy ears want to hear. And you know how you do that? You just Google a subject. And you'll find a teacher that'll tell you exactly what you want to hear. And, so, and some of those teachers are quite eloquent. They're good at hiding the hook. Uh, yeah, I've, I've fished with really good fishermen before, and I'm okay. They were really good. And I remember get, they just caught so many more fish than me. And I was, wow. And I realized it was the way they were doing their bait. Just hid their, they just hid their hooks better than I did. They knew exactly what the fish wanted. And they put the right bait and the right consistency on. I didn't. So mine was a bit messy and I got lucky every now and again. Theirs was precise and worked out on the water temperature and whatever. And, and the problem is there's a lot of bad teachers that are very good fishermen. <laughs> so, so now you've got an elder that knows enough, but he can't teach as well as that. Because remember, the ability to teach doesn't mean he's teaching the truth. And, 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 and suddenly the church is divided, and, and Facebook is just filled with new teachers. <laughs> Guys are sponsoring their posts, trying to get more followers. And understand, if they're trying to get more followers, you have to ask the question. I, I, there was a big church in Cape Town, one of the biggest churches in the country, and, and I remember when seeing their advert once, and they said this, come join us on Sunday. Because with us, every Sunday is fun day. I thought, oh my goodness, that tells me a lot about you. It tells me when you sit down as a leadership team, your thinking is how do we make next Sunday so fun that everyone wants to come, no one wants to miss it. But Jesus didn't use the word fun when he called us to follow him. In fact, he said, come pick up a cross and die. Come lose your life. As a church, you are making church like Disney World so that people will come. And they will come because they are looking to what they want. They want their needs met. They want their itchy ears scratched. But you are actually making people the center of the church and not Jesus. Does this make sense? (laughs) 
We need to have one mind. And, and that means that the Bible says, like in a family, you know, as a father, my daughter has tried this line on me before. I, you know, I would say to her, my girl, I don't want you to go to that party or do that thing, or I want you to come back at this time. But all my friends, their parents, and they're also Christian parents, and they're allowed to go to that party. She's just trying to dial into the internet. And she's going to find, she's going to try and use that to show that I'm wrong. And I've got to say to my girl, that's between them and God. I'm responsible for you. One day, I'm going to give an account for your life. I'm doing the very best I know. I'm not trying to be a killjoy. But I just don't think that that's going to be good for you. And so I am responsible. Therefore, I'm making the call. You need to obey me. The Bible speaks about the local church, and it says, Obey your leaders, your, lead, your leaders. And submit to their authority, for they keep watch over you as men and must give an account. Don't go and dive into the neighbor. Well, they're allowed to do it like that. No, that guy's not responsible for you. And you see, the problem in the church is if we just keep dialing into what we want to, we don't have one mind. We have division. Division means division. It's Greek. It's basically, break it down, you, you seeing two different things, two visions the eye specialist which is not a good thing <laughs> um, so I, I would ask you in the Lord find a church if it's not this one find a church that you know believes teaches the truth where the elders are doing their best to model and reflect the New Testament way where there is submission to someone outside of them that it's not one man and his like glory hallelujah for that man I actually think a healthy church, you don't even know who the man is that leads it. Got to look hard to find him. Because the church is the church, it's not a man. It's a people, it's a kingdom of priests. For me, one of the most glorious things about 412 and Josh Jen is actually our people. They often are the best witness to us. Of They make us look way better than we are, actually. It's the people who are so devoted that... Uh, the you know, leaders take notice of us. So, one mind, and I would call you in the Lord to have one mind and really try and understand where your leaders are taking you and, and, and follow them. One love. I need to wrap this. One love. A new command I give you that you love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. And we see that when we look at the book of Acts, don't you? No one had any need. One of the things we're going to do later is pray a prayer as we join the two churches together. And we've got this prayer, and I often joke it sounds so cultish. And we would never, we would never force that on somebody because the kingdom is always something that I give. It's not something taken. So it's not like if you join the church now, I suddenly can go into your bank account and, well, I've decided it's mine. <laughs> it would be nice, but there's not other. <laughs> we gave, they gave of themselves. They devoted themselves. When everyone understands it right, every person comes and says, I want to love my brother. In fact, the Bible says, if you see your brother in need, don't go and say, well, brother, I'll pray for you. He actually says that. Don't go and pray for him if you can meet his need. Because you're just being a hypocrite. You're just not loving. Praying sounds like a spiritual, doesn't it? it? Sounds very spiritual. Oh, gee, you don't have food. Oh, let me pray for you. But you're not being spiritual at all. 
Because if you can meet your brother's need, if he's a, the body feeds itself, it cares for itself. If you are a koinonia, then I'm going to help you because I'm going to love you. If your child was hungry, say, Dad, I've got no food. I'll pray for you. <laughs> well, the husband comes home tired after a day of work and, honey, I'm hungry. I'll pray for you, honey. <laughs> we care for one another because we love one another. Surely this is Christianity. <laughs> On your behalf. The scary thing with us is we're so good at looking spiritual, like... I will pray and intercede on your behalf. And it's like, no, don't. Just meet my need. Please help me. In fact, it's so bad in the early church. It's so good there that if some, now you get people that are going to milk this. You're going to get lazy people. It's super cool to be in the church. I don't have to work. People just feed me. You know the church is doing it well when the, the New Testament actually says, hey, warn certain people in the church that are lazy. And if they won't work, because they're now just milking of everyone else, get up and publicly rebuke them in your meetings. And say to the church, basically, please no one feed this guy. He's just lazy until he learns his lesson. That's New Testament Christianity. When last did you see that happen? They, they, you, know, you know you're getting it right when guys are like, we, I have done that before. The, 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 please, guys, we love this guy. He's a brother, but he's a lazy brother. pray for him <laughs> from now on you can pray for him you can't feed him anymore just, just <laughs> not until he changes not until he repents we'll try and help him but every time we've tried to help him he's just said no i don't want to do that so now he's just he's just sucking the life like a leech out of the church don't feed him that's what the new testament says that now we're getting healthy now we okay now jesus like that's starting to look like my church That we love. And then have one spirit. Yeah. To be united in spirit. What does that even mean? That we would have one spirit. This is, this is what the, the early apostles called us to. That we would have one spirit. And, and you have a picture of this in, in some ways. When, when 1 Samuel 18 verse 1. You could just put that up for me. 1 Samuel 18. We, we read about David and Jonathan. And, and the Bible tells us that um, they loved one another as brothers. It was a deep love that, that somehow God gave them. And they became one in spirit. And he loved him as he loved himself. Isn't that beautiful? Imagine being loved by somebody like they love themselves. And then didn't Jesus say, love what? Doesn't that kind of ring true as a New Testament command? Being one in spirit means that I am no longer me. And I'm not, I am and I'm not. I'll always be Andrew and God made me unique. And I don't know why he made me like he did, but he did. But I'm also part of you. And I'm to love you. I'm to always put your interests above my own. Because that's love, isn't it? To always think what's best for you, not what's best for me. You see, when the church starts to be one spirit, people come not to get, but to give. They come to love. If you know you're getting this when you arrive on a Sunday and you're not going, I'm going to gauge this meeting on how good the preach was and whether I got a goosebump in worship. You're gauging the meeting on how well did I love today? Who did I show the love of God to? 
Who did I serve? Who did I give myself to? And love is a powerful word. It, you know, it always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. I often say to the church, and I don't think they like this, but who's been hurt in life? If you're honest, pretty much everyone. Who's been hurt by the church? Well, pretty much been around for a little while. In fact, if you haven't been hurt by the church, come meet me afterwards. We'll get over that and we can move on because, <laughs> because the church is people. I mean, in any marriage, who's been hurt in a marriage? He, 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 forgot, your, he forgot your anniversary. He, who's been hurt? I mean, come on. And, and so what we want to do is we want to put these little walls around us. Like, well, I've been hurt, you know. So I don't know if I'm going to let you back in here again. Because that was really sore. And, um, and then Jesus, well, the scripture says, love always trusts. I've heard it said trust is earned. But that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says trust is given. It's not earned. In fact, no one really should earn your trust. Because everyone fails and falls short of the glory of God. We love because he loved us when we didn't earn his trust. The true church is a place. And I was sharing with the leaders last night. Jesus chose Judas knowing what he would do, and he loved him. He didn't treat Judas separately. Well, I know what you're going to do, so I'm just going to keep you at arm's length. The Last Supper, he literally dips the bread in the sop and makes, giving it to Judas makes Judas his guest of honor. The one he honors more than all the others in that moment. Knowing within a few minutes, Judas is going to go and sell him to be crucified. And the Lord loves. And then says, love one another as I have loved you. Oh, Lord, help me to love. Even if I get hurt. If they you offered your cheek. You offered your cheek to those who pulled out your beard. You didn't go, well, it's all just, do you know who I am? Like, I've got 12 legions of angels. I could sort you. He offered his cheek. This is 101 Christianity, to love. Without love, you have nothing. Do you realize how far, do you realize how far full, full is that, a, is that a, a parrot to a cell phone? Hello. <laughs> We forgive one another when their phones go off and stuff. <laughs> but you get this. You see, we, we can't just go, well, that's crazy. It is crazy. It's impossible outside of the king and the kingdom. In fact, if you're not thinking it's impossible, you don't understand grace because grace is the power of God. This is the church Jesus dreams of. Love one another, little ones, as I've loved you. That means this place, when it's getting it right, is an incredible place because everyone's loving one another. And then he goes on, intent on one purpose, and I'll finish with this. <sighs> What's your purpose? In other words, what, what is the thing that you wake up for on Monday morning? Because that's your purpose. Uh, so, you know, as I live my life, there have been many things that have tried to become my life purpose. When I was younger, my life purpose was to surf. If I wanted to, I used to surf eight hours a day. I was competitive. I wanted to make a living out of it. 
Uh, I loved surfing. It was what I lived for. And then oh, I got saved. But if I didn't get saved, I probably would have replaced that with some other life purpose as I grew. Maybe it would have been a family. That would have been my life purpose. Maybe it would have been my career. It could have been my life purpose. But that's not what, you see, as soon as you live for something, that becomes your God. So when something is your life purpose, it is the thing you serve. And then it becomes an idol. And anything, anything that takes that place, that, that's what I wake up for. That is your God. You can say you're Christian, but you're not. If you're not living for Christ. On one, not your sovereign. Does this make sense? And they were intent on one purpose. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship. So their life purpose wasn't their careers. And they had careers. We know they were tent makers. They, were different. they needed to make a living like we do. But that wasn't what they, they lived for. Their life purpose wasn't to get married and have kids. They did those things, and those were good gifts that God gave. But they were not the things they lived for. In fact, Paul would even write and say, I want to save you many troubles. Sometimes it's better to not marry because you can be more devoted to the king. Even a wife can sometimes become a hindrance to your service. He says that. It's a pretty radical message if you think about it. She can be a great help if she gives herself to you. And two is better than one. But she can also be a great hindrance. It makes it difficult. Does this make sense? So the, the, the priority of their lives was the king and the kingdom. He is our master. He is our Lord. And our priority is to make disciples of nations through the vehicle of the church. That we would express the church, be the church, live the church, and then bring others into this thing. And our life is, I'm going to use my career, I'm going to use everything I have to extend that thing. That's my life purpose. <laughs> is this making sense? And, and we see that in the Bible, you know, we do see that. When you look at the early Christians, they lived for the kingdom of God. In fact, James had even write in the church being persecuted and guys are scattering. And I have to say, imagine if South Africa goes pear. I mean, a lot of us think it could. And they decide, if somebody decides, you know, Amba. And, and, and you lose everything. You lose, I mean, the early Christians, they had their their property confiscated because they were Christians. So it's not like it hasn't happened before. What do you do? Do you decide, okay, I don't know if I want that. I think I'm going to... And then when you decide where you're going to go, what makes you decide where you go? Your security? Your career? Where it's going to be best for your family? Because James very clearly says in James 5... In a, to a persecuted church it's now asking those questions as they're being scattered, their, com their property confiscated, and they have to run for their lives. He says, don't say, I'm going to go here or there to earn a living. Don't say, I'm going to go here because that's a good place to live. He says, say, if it is the Lord's will, I will. Lord, the question is, I'm your servant and you're my sovereign. Where do you want your kingdom to come through me? I understand you work in all things for the good. Even they would have found the confiscation of their property was for the good. They rejoiced in it, the Bible tells us. They didn't moan about it. They rejoiced in it. Because they understood the sovereign. They understood that he was able to keep them. 
And they did what he told them to do, even if it cost them everything. Their life priority was king and kingdom. Matthew 6, 33, seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Do you realize these things are, now that I'm saying it, you, you kind of realize they're all over the Bible, but who lives like that? Because we're so used to the counterfeit. And Peter warned us right at the start, be careful, because there's a false Christianity going to emerge. It's going to be very common. Many will follow their teachings. And they'll think they're eating the gospel of life, but they've taken a hook of destruction. <laughs> and they are no longer serving the sovereign Lord who bought them. We have a dream, or well, God had a dream, where every single one of us would prioritize the king and the kingdom. It's so great uh, just chatting with some of the young guys here, and some having medical, uh, studying in you know, different medical fields, nurses or occupational therapists, and, and hearing them say things like this. I'm going to be forced to go somewhere in a year or two's time when government sends me off for a year to go and I've got to pay back my... And, their priority, and to hear them say this, I pray I can find a place where I can extend the church. I'm asking that I can be here and here and here because I think my life could add to the church there. They're not thinking, gee, I hope I get Jeffrey's Bay because it's... They're, they're, they're thinking, the church, the church, the church. When a job offer comes, one of our young men in one of our churches had an opportunity, a job offer open up for him in Taiwan. And he met with us, and his, his conversation was like, and Taiwan is not easy. He doesn't speak Taiwanese. It's, I mean, you're a different race, different everything. And his conversation was, we don't have a church there. I can get in. I want to use my job to extend the kingdom of God. What do you think? I'm submitting it to you guys. Go for it. He's gone in there, started a church in his home, but he's working on the side, which you actually all should be doing. You work on the side and you're extending the kingdom of God with everything else. And, and people are getting saved. People are being added into the kingdom. People that would never have heard. Because for him, he didn't follow his career. His priority was the king and the kingdom. Even here, you know, you look at um, churches that we want to plant in the regions around here. We need healthy churches across Bloemfontein and into the regions beyond. That every one of us is thinking, where would my life count the most for the king? I'll move. Because I want the kingdom to come. I want to make disciples of nations. This is 101 Christianity. It's a life purpose and a life priority that defines you and shapes you. In some ways, the word Christian actually comes from full Christ. You're living for the Father's glory. So I'll finish with that. I don't know if that was a... I hope it went in. I hope I just didn't offend people. Because <laughs> sometimes it is difficult to hear the difficult things, especially when you're enjoying the bait that you're eating. <laughs> but this message is a serious message because Peter's warning was bringing swift destruction upon themselves. If you deny the sovereign Lord, you will not hear him say, welcome into my kingdom. You will not hear him say, well done, my good and faithful servant. You will hear him say, as he warns in the book of Matthew, many will say on that day, Lord, Lord, I drove out demons in your name. I healed the sick in your name. And he will say, he said, 
depart from me. I never knew you. Don't know you. Because you didn't make me your sovereign Lord. He said, if you don't pick up your cross and die with me, you will not be raised with me. And so this message is actually the message of the New Testament Christians. It's a message of the Bible. And it's a message that can save you and actually bring you into that space where you do live for the glory of God. That you run your race and you beat your body and you one day hear the Master say, you are beautiful. You're beautiful to me. You've made yourself beautiful with your good works. White robes have given her to wear, the Bible says. White robes signifies, the book of Revelation, the good works that you've lived in. You're not saved by good works, but you know you're saved because there are good works. <laughs> and I, 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 This is the opportunity of heaven. This is what the Father offers you. He bought you off the fields of slavery. You and I were stuck in sin. Nothing could save us. We could never be good enough to be right with him. But he loved us and died on a cross for us to bring us into his house and include us in his family and give us an inheritance that's different from any earthly inheritance because that inheritance cannot fade or spoil. He keeps it for us forever because we've shown ourselves to be his sons and his daughters as we have lived for our Father's house. And the Father's offering opportunity to each of us and saying, will you make me sovereign in your life? Can I be your Lord? Or do you want to be what Adam wanted? Adam fell from God because he wanted to be like God. He wanted to rule his own life and live his own way. Or will you let God be God? He says at one point, here I am. Church is meeting inside in the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 3. Church is meeting and he says, here I am. I stand at the door and knock. Will you hear me? Will you open the door? Will you let me come and be sovereign? And if you open the door to me, I will come in and I will eat with you and have fellowship with you and I will be your God and you'll be my people. Because you meet in a church does not mean he is in you and in us. He comes into what we let him come into. And so I want to give you an opportunity to make him your sovereign Lord. That you would seek first the kingdom of God as he called us to in Matthew 6.33. And then I'm going to pray with us as we join the two together. But why don't we close our eyes and bow our heads.